Well, good morning and welcome. Um, today we're going to be kicking off an 11-week series through the book of Colossians, um, titled Colossians, the Supremacy of Christ. Uh, you might have noticed that every song we sang this morning um, sung about Christ. We even sung about being in Christ, which is going to be a major theme throughout uh, the book of Colossians. So Colossians, the supremacy of Christ. And I think um, after we've studied the book, you'll see why we've chosen that title for the series. This letter is one of the most Christ-exalting letters in all of the New Testament. Um, today, we're going to be in just the first two verses so that we can set up the rest of the book well. So Colossians 1, verses 1 through 2. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. As we dive into the text, I want to give us a little bit of a, a background to the letter um, and explain who it was written to and some of the issues that they as a church were wrestling with. Uh, that'll help us understand some of the context and why the author, Paul, um, takes the particular trajectory that he does. Uh, this letter, as verse 1 tells us, is written by Paul, the apostle. Specifically, he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, very briefly, this office of capital A Apostle does not exist today. Um, there are no more apostles in today's world. I know that uh, I've picked on this before uh, in our Galatians series, but uh, I feel the need to come back to it for two reasons. Uh, one, there are churches today, even here in Santa Cruz, that claim that the office of apostle still exists. Uh, many in the charismatic movement even claim to be apostles um, with apostolic authority to almost speak on the, the level of scripture. Um, second, we're going to encounter uh, other issues relating to the charismatic movement throughout Col the rest of Colossians. So it, it's important for us from the beginning to understand what Paul's even claiming here. Uh, a capital A apostle has two qualifications. Number one, saw the risen Christ. Number two, commissioned by Jesus himself. Um, we see these qualifications actually in scripture. Um, I'm not just making these up. So when Paul was defending his own apostleship, he says this in 1 Corinthians 9.1. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Then, in recounting the, uh, the, the people who saw Christ after his resurrection, Paul says this. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 9. He says, then he, meaning Jesus, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So, Seen the risen Lord is essential to uh, apostleship. Second, uh, in Acts chapter 26, we see Paul making this big deal out of being appointed by Christ himself on the road to Damascus. Uh, he repeats this again and again and again. 
in places like Romans 1.1, Galatians 1.1, 1 Timothy 1.12, 1 Timothy 2.7, and 2 Timothy 1.11. So over and over and over again, to defend his apostleship, Paul's saying things like, Christ himself commissioned me. I saw the risen Lord. Uh, even when the apostles replace Judas um, with Matthias, they don't make that call themselves. They ask the ascended Christ to make the decision for them. So Acts chapter 1, verses 26 th- or 24 through 26, so they're trying to pick who, who the replacement for Judas as an apostle is going to be. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know uh, the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Uh, if we don't take the uh, Acts 1's word for it, or we don't take Paul's word for it, what about Jesus himself? What does he say uh, about this? Matthew 10, verses 1 through 5. And he, meaning Jesus, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. And then it lists out all the names of the apostles. And then verse 5, it says, these 12 Jesus sent out. They're commissioned by Jesus explicitly. The office of Capital A Apostle doesn't exist today, but it did in Paul's time. And from the beginning, Paul, as in Galatians, is reminding them of his authoritative office. And this is distinctly different than how Paul opens, say, the book of Philippians. Um, In Philippians, Paul starts out the letter. Remember, it's, it's a joyous letter that he's writing to them. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So in Philippians, he's writing, saying, we're servants writing to you. Here he's saying, I'm writing to you as an apostle. Not that those two are any different from one another with their authority as a letter, but sometimes he saw the need to remind who he was writing to of his authority to speak to them. So Paul the apostle is writing this letter to the church in Colossae. Colossae, Uh, is about 100 miles east of Ephesus uh, in a a little town um, in the Lycus River Valley in modern western-day Turkey. So, I mean, you kind of see where it is right down there at the bottom with the red dot. About 100 miles inland from Ephesus. Um, Its nearest neighbors were Laodicea, 10 miles away, and Hierapolis, 13 miles away. Um, we're going to see that the same guy actually started all three of those churches. Uh, So it's important for us to know that during the periods between the Persian and the Greek empires, so 4th and 5th centuries BC, Colossae was actually a large, important city. Um, But this would change with, number one, a transformation in the road system, um, and then specifically with a huge earthquake in 60 and 61, around the time that Paul wrote this letter to them. So uh, over time, Colossae became less and less and less significant. Uh, One commentator says that the Colossian church was the least important to which um, any epistle or letter of Paul was was ever written. 
Colossa was not even mentioned in the book of Acts. And Paul himself never even went there. Um, That's another reason why Paul needed to assert his authority as an apostle. He had never been there. So the question then is, if Paul had never been there, how did this church get planted or how did it get started? Uh, We learn this in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. It says, And he, meaning Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul is in Ephesus. He is preaching and teaching and reasoning and persuading. And he does this for two whole years there in Ephesus, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That includes Colossae. Most believe that that two of the Colossian residents, Epaphras and Philemon, came to know the Lord under Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. Uh, We'll learn later in verse 7 about Epaphras, who planted the church in Colossae, uh, which actually met in Philemon's house. So uh, apparently Epaphras was instrumental in starting several churches in the Lycus Valley. Uh, Like I said earlier, one in Laodicea that ends up being spoken of negatively as lukewarm uh, in the book of Revelation, unfortunately. So follow this a little bit. Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus. Paul gives his life to following Jesus right there. Paul proclaims the gospel in Ephesus. Epaphras and Philemon hear the gospel, repent and believe in Jesus. They go back to their hometown and proclaim the same gospel, and a church is born in Colossae. That is Christian discipleship at its finest. Christian disciples make disciples who make disciple-making disciples. It's a mouthful, but I'm going to say it again. Christian disciples make disciples who make disciple-making disciples. Well, come back to Epaphras next week, but here's the rest of the backstory. Epaphras starts this church in Colossae. It's going really well, but in creeps this heretical philosophy, a false teaching known as Gnosticism. Uh, The basic idea behind Gnosticism is this. They believed that they were in the know. Uh, The word gnosis means knowledge. Gnostics taught that matter, or anything physical for that matter, was bad, and that only spiritual was good. They believed that they were superior to all of the quote-unquote lesser Christians who weren't in the know like them. In their minds, they were the spiritual elite who possessed the secret, deeper knowledge that most others didn't or maybe even couldn't have. In other words, they were teaching that Jesus isn't sufficient. You also needed secret knowledge to be a real Christian. Now, think about that. If matter 
or physicality, if that's inherently bad, what does this do to our doctrine of creation? If matter is evil, God couldn't be involved in creation at all because he, being perfect, couldn't touch matter. Uh, One commentator explains the Gnostic view of creation this way. So this is uh, their false view of creation. They believe that the world came into being through a complicated surrogate process as God put forth thousands of emanations or lesser gods, each of which was a little more distant from him. So that finally there was an emanation or a little god so distant from God that it could, could touch matter and it created the world. You see that? If God cannot touch matter because matter is bad, he cannot be intimately involved in creation. He can't be creator. How about the doctrine of Christ? If matter is inherently evil, our doctrine of Christ also is demolished. Jesus came to this earth in a body, right? Fully human. So, to the Gnostics, that couldn't happen. To them, Christ wasn't creator, the incarnation didn't happen, and Jesus wasn't enough. That, in a nutshell, is what starts creeping into the Colossian church. So, what does Epaphras do? He goes looking for Paul to ask for help. He finds him in prison, most likely in Rome, and shares what's going on. Paul, this stuff's creeping into the church. What do I do about it? So Paul then writes this letter back to the church in Colossae. So what we're going to see Paul doing over and over and over and over and over again is exalting Christ. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's sufficient. He's not some secret knowledge that only a select few know about. He's revealed himself clearly. Now, with all of these things in mind, let's jump back into the text and briefly walk through the first two verses. Colossians 1, 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So first, notice that Paul after asserting his apostleship, says that this is by the will of God. For Paul, everything was by God's will. His salvation, his calling, and yes, even his suffering. Paired with the declaration of apostleship, what Paul's getting at here is this. The Colossian church and us this morning are obligated to listen to him. I didn't choose Paul to be an apostle. You didn't choose Paul to be an apostle. The Colossian church didn't appoint him to be an apostle. God did. He's reminding them of that. It was by God's will that Paul was given spiritual authority to then be able to speak to them. So, in contrast to the false teachers in Colossae, or present-day false teaching, Paul's words are to be trusted and to be applied to life. But it's even more than that. Uh, N.T. Wright, he he notes that this designation, by the will of God, 
It is not merely an indication of the ultimate source of his authority, but a linking of Paul's task to the overarching divine plan of salvation. So what God had called Paul to be and to do was part of God's divine plan to move the kingdom forward since before the foundation of the world. As a side note, I just want to ask you the question this morning. Do you know that who you are and what you do is by the will of God as well? If you're a stay-at-home mom, you're that by the will of God. You're a teacher by the will of God. You're a nurse by the will of God. You're a businessman or woman by the will of God. Whatever it is that you do, God has led you there and has a purpose for you there. Just like Paul, God met Paul on the road to Damascus and called him to use him for his glory. So it isn't just pastors and missionaries that have a calling. It's you. Uh, Three books, I meant to have them here to to show show them uh, in person, but uh, three books that I absolutely love on this topic are these. A little book called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Um, If you've been around me for any amount of time, I've probably given you a copy of that. Um, But it's really helpful on discerning the the will of God in your life. He makes it a lot more simple than most people do. Really helpful. So Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Every Good Endeavor by by Tim Keller. And then The Gospel at Work by Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert. Uh, Both of those last two books look at uh, how we live out the Christian life as called believers uh, in the workplace, in whatever it is that we do. Um, So what you do matters to God, uh, and you're there by his will. Second, Paul includes Timothy. Um, While we don't know the extent of Timothy's involvement in the letter, uh, whether he was the copyist or, or something else, here's what I want us to see. Paul isn't a lone ranger. Uh, He's Timothy's spiritual father. He's been discipling Timothy, intentionally doing him spiritual good and training him for the work of ministry. And he includes Timothy in the writing and the sending of this letter to the Colossians. So after Paul's dead and gone, uh, we know that Timothy is actually going to carry on his ministry. So I'll ask you, do you have a Timothy? Are any of you? Timothy's? We want this to be a focus of our church over the next year. Discipleship. As elders, we've been working hard at this over the last several months. We want to define what we mean by disciple, what we mean by discipleship, and what we mean by discipling. We want to have a clear path that each and every one of us are on. We each need to know what our next steps are in in discipleship. Kind of like a a GPS for spiritual growth. A GPS tells you where you are and how to get where you're going. We want to do that as a church. So you're going to hear a lot about this in the coming weeks and years. But we've come up with a a lot of help, not not by ourselves, but we've come up with this definition. Uh, A disciple is anyone walking in the way of Jesus Christ, intending to integrate their relationship with Jesus into every area of life. So I'll say that again. It's up here on the screen as well, if you want to take a picture of it. A disciple is anyone walking in the way of Jesus Christ, 
intending to integrate their relationship with Jesus into every area of life. So that's what what Paul's doing with Timothy, even in the writing of this letter to the Colossians. Discipling, then, is the activities of believers to deliberately help another believer grow to be more like Jesus. If you're not in some kind of discipling relationship, please come talk to us. We would love to get you plugged in. We want everyone who's part of this church to be making disciples who make disciple-making disciples, as I said earlier. You should be in the process somewhere, uh, either being discipled or discipling someone else, or both. So Paul includes Timothy uh, as part of his discipleship in this letter. Third, look with me at verse 2. It says, To the saints and faithful brothers. You could also translate it brothers and sisters there. But here's my question to you. What do you think of when you hear the word saint? Skinny dude? Lips pursed together, maybe? Got a couple pictures of of saints here. Is that what you think of? Maybe fingers held up? Stained glass? Sean Payton? What do you think of when you hear the word saint? This word, hagias, or holy ones, it's a beautiful word that unfortunately has been co-opted and distorted a little bit. But in scripture, this word isn't a special class of Christian, but it's for all Christians. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. Saint Missy. Saint Johnny, Saint Neil, Saint Tiffany. And here's why that's beautiful. None of us are saints because we're particularly saintly. The word hagios means holy. That's why we're we're declared holy as Christians. Not because we're saintly or holy in and of ourselves, but because of Christ. Because of our sin, none of us are holy. None of us are saints. But Jesus was. He lived perfectly in every single way, without sin. He came and died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. And his righteousness, his holiness, his saintliness gets credited to us, to all of us who who repent and believe in Christ. Guess what? That makes you a saint. That's beautiful. Now, because in Christ we're declared saints, we should live holy lives. Lives that reflect God's character. Lives that glorify him. So Paul addresses them as saints. But then he says even more. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because we're going to be hitting this multiple times in the book of Colossians, particularly in chapter 3. But the words in Christ are monumental. The fancy theological word for this is union. To be in Christ or unified with Christ. What does this mean? 
Well, it means that for those who are Christians, we're spiritually merged with Jesus. What happens to Jesus happens to you, as we learned on on Easter. What happens to Jesus happens to you. So consider this. It, It may be tempting to think that this is something that you can lose. You might think, I've just sinned too much. And now I'm probably out of union with Christ. Not possible. But we do take Christ everywhere we go, for good and for bad. So check out what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about this. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 20. So even though we can't lose this union with Christ, we do take it wherever we go, for good and for bad. He says, do you not know that your, your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. To be in Christ is to be spiritually merged with Jesus. So uh, when he died, your sin died with him. When he rose from the grave, you rose with him as a new person. When God, the just judge, looks at you, he sees Jesus. You're clothed in his righteousness and declared a saint. Why? Because you're in Christ. Now, I can't stress enough how big of a deal this is. This truth changes everything. To be In Christ, it is fundamental to your identity and to your existence. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Again, in in certain circles, people teach that to be a real Christian, you have to have some some secret, special knowledge, or to, to speak in tongues, or to be really amped up on the Holy Spirit. Hear this. If you're unified with Christ, There's nothing else you need. Christ is supreme, sufficient, and preeminent. The deeper so-called spiritual knowledge being peddled by these false teachers in Colossae doesn't hold a candle to being in Christ. That's foundational. Look at what Paul also says. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. You see that? There's two locations, in Christ and at or in Colossae. In the original language, the preposition there is exactly the same. We're citizens of two kingdoms, an earthly kingdom and a heavenly kingdom. We live simultaneously in Christ and in Santa Cruz County. So understand this, where you live, the culture, the economics, the educational opportunities, they certainly all affect who you are, but they're not foundational to your identity. You are 
in Santa Cruz, but most foundationally, you're in Christ. Two kingdoms, two simultaneous experiences as a believer and as a citizen. So in Santa Cruz is where you are, but it's not what or who you are. You're in Christ. I love these words by Sam Storms on these two realities. He says this. He says, I may live here, but what defines me and shapes me is my relationship to Jesus. No matter where you are geographically and physically, what you are spiritually will never change. You may be at work, at play, overseas, under the weather, out of money, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be down in the dumps, over the hill, or beside yourself, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be at paradise or in prison, at the movies or in Chicago, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. He goes on and he says, your geographical, earthly, physical location has no effect on your spiritual identity. Now, I want to take that and flip it the other way as well. We could easily take this truth of our union with Christ and be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good, as they say. We could think, I'm in Christ, so nothing here matters. No. What Paul's saying here actually goes both ways. It's two sides of the same coin. Precisely because we're in Christ, we make a difference in Santa Cruz. We bring being in Christ to the table everywhere we go and in everything we are. Being in Christ functions more like a, a passport than um, an, or more like an accent than a passport. I'll say that again. Being in Christ functions more like an accent than a passport. So you can hide your passport. You, you can put it away in your backpack, but an accent gives you away immediately. The moment you speak, people know that something about you, uh, maybe where you come from even. So as you work in Santa Cruz, you're in Christ. You can't get rid of that. You're bringing it with you. As you pay taxes in Santa Cruz, you're in Christ. As you neighbor in Santa Cruz, you're in Christ. As you live in Santa Cruz, you're in Christ. It flavors and saturates everything. Because you're a citizen of heaven, you're a good citizen on earth. So never forget that. You're not just in Christ when you're at church. You're in Christ everywhere you go. So let me ask you, are others aware of your dual citizenship based on how you live? Does your accent give you away, so to speak? Or do you look like you're completely at home here on this earth? Would an unknowing observer view your life and say, that looks different? Does your sainthood shine through in the way you live? If you're a Christian, you are in Christ and in Santa Cruz or wherever you live. Finally, Paul finishes his greeting with these words. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's easy just to kind of skip over words like this and see them as kind of just a customary introduction. But 
It's so much more than that. The customary greeting for letters in Greek culture was kyrene, or greetings. But Paul uses a play on words here. He says kairis instead of kyrene. Grace uses that this Greek customary greeting changes it. Then he adds, and peace, which is the Hebrew greeting of shalom. There's so much more that could be said here, but I'll simply leave it at this. The order here matters. First, grace, you are the recipient of God's unmerited favor. Grace, what a blessing. And because of that, you can have peace. Grace is the means by which we're unified to Christ. And peace is the result. Because of the grace that the Colossians knew in Christ, Paul's opening wish for them, before he wrote another stroke, was for them to comprehend and experience the depth of well-being that can only come from God. And that's my prayer for you this morning. For those who are in Christ, in Santa Cruz, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray.